Live from the Old Church Concert Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. May the narrative be with you. I grew up in a small town north of Manhattan, nestled in a bend of the Hudson River and tucked in the shadow of the Palisades Cliffs. It's called Dobbs Ferry, New York. This is a town where the question of whether or not you're going to college doesn't exist. It's which college are you going to and is it an Ivy League? And on top of that environment, I was gifted one of the most loving and supportive families on the face of this planet. They encouraged me to be myself, my authentic true self, no matter what, in any situation. And this filled me with a confidence and a vibrance that carried through in everything I did. And it allowed me to operate in the world without a care in the world. I was worry-free. Nothing possibly bad could happen to me because of my family and where I grew up. And that was tested when I went to college. I went to a small liberal arts college in the South. There were winding brick paths covering grassy knolls in beautiful patterns. There were sweeping views of white pillared red brick buildings, the antebellum architecture of the South. And there were stone chapels and Confederate monuments peppered throughout the campus, which was a real moment as a northerner, um, and a lot to reconcile. A little bit more context about this place. Uh, where I grew up, it was affluent, but it wasn't filthy rich. But my classmates, in their uniform of salmon shorts, pastel polo, and if you want to dress it up, you put a little product in your hair and quaff it, but most of the time when you go to class, you take a white baseball cap and you stick it on backwards and you're good to go. And the women were exclusively Lily Pulitzer. Three of my classmates had private jets that they could take to Nantucket or Chicago or Dallas or Napa if they wanted to go wine tasting for a weekend. These were the people that were the top tenth of the 1% of our society. And I was there, right? I belonged. I was there. I had worked my way to this place, and I felt like I had really earned it, and to this place where literally anything you wanted to be, you could be by virtue of who was with you, who you were rubbing elbows with, who their parents were, and who their parents knew. And the first time I really felt like I belonged was uh, when I was initiated into my fraternity. Now, the school was 94% Greek, so it wasn't a matter of whether or not you were uh, going to be Greek. It was which fraternity fit you best. And they lined us up in this chapter room where Andrew Carnegie and Rockefeller would hang out with like leather-bound books and green banker's lamps and this big fireplace, and they called it the chapter room. And they lined us up in five rows of five, and they had us kneel and bow our heads to accept our pledge names. And along the walls, there are no fewer than 70 boys, I'll call them, in their salmon shorts and pastel polos and backwards white baseball caps. And these pledge names are generally degrading, but not too deeply personal. They're things like dipshit or smegma or 
in my case, friend request denied, which <laughs> really hit right there. Uh, and I had to swallow that, right? Because I wanted to be part of this club, and I was in this club, and if I swallowed this, then I would continue to be in the club. Fast forward to my first MLK day there. We're walking to class. Um, there are wisps of breath coming out of a group of three of us. And uh, I turn to my friend and I suddenly realize, oh, we're going to class and it's MLK day. And I ask, hey, why, are, why do we have class today? It's MLK day. And he goes, are you gonna bake that man a cake? Down here, that's Robert E. Lee's birthday. And I stayed silent. Because if I spoke, I'd be out of the club. Fast forward another few years to 2012. It's the uh, election of Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. And the fraternity house was divided. Um, we had uh, the President Barack Obama room, where they're watching CNN, and then you had the Romney room, where they're watching Fox News, and uh, I found myself squarely in the middle of that with my salmon shorts, pastel polo, and white baseball cap, which I picked up at the very first chance I could go back home. And in this room, we're all cheering whenever a state turns red, and a little part of me whimpered whenever that happened, but I ignored it and pushed it down. Um, and I realized that, oh, I can cheer for someone here who uh, certainly fits my best interests, um, and then everyone else's be damned. Uh, and in this room, too, they were referring to our president at the time nearly exclusively as Hussein. And I joined in. I had moved from a passive listener and enabler to an active contributor and someone who was part of the problem. I enjoyed four years of astronomical privilege and um, opportunity at that school, and it came at a great cost. Then I moved to Portland by virtue of uh, my network, which I also took for granted. I thought everybody had a network. Um, I moved out here uh, for an internship for three months, and it was a happy accident. Um, Portland, a place where individualism is celebrated, and uh, our differences are held up, and we are an accepting group of people, because that's who we are. And slowly, I began to change through a series of very uncomfortable situations. The first one was I was out the very first time in Portland, and I... Uh, was wearing like this green and white gingham shirt with like the little polo pony on it and like this pair of salmon shorts. And this guy kind of saunters up to me and he pokes me in the chest and goes, why are you wearing that? No one wants to see that shit. <laughs> and I was dumbstruck because my thought was, if you could wear this shit, why wouldn't you? And uh, slowly, 
from the inside, augmented by these experiences on the outside, um, I began to change. I began to um, see people as simply different, not better or worse than. I saw, um, I made friends with people from vastly different backgrounds of my own, um, people who have had vastly different life experiences than mine, and it began to change me. Uh, I would say the real keystone moment of that change was MLK Day 2018, where at the time, um, my girlfriend, who was mixed race, and I, uh, we had just returned from the Netherlands visiting her family, and we went to the Hollywood Theater to see Amazon's first uh, originally produced documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. It's a movie where James Baldwin's 35 pages of unpublished text, which include letters to Malcolm X and Dr. King, uh, are the driving narrative throughout. And at the time, I'd taken an interest in um, you know, oppressed peoples and institutionalized oppression and racism and things that you don't really think about. Um, at least I hadn't thought about yet. And, you know, I thought that these were important to me, and, and they were. But there's one moment where Baldwin and this Yale professor, uh, old white guy who epitomized everything uh, of the academic world that I had come from and spent four years, are on the Dick Cavett show. And the professor is disagreeing with everything that Baldwin said. Um, not with any degree of malice, but from a place of ignorance. And Baldwin went on to say that when he left the United States, he ended up on the streets of Paris with less than $40 in his pocket. And that was okay, because he left based on the theory that no matter where he went in the world, whether it be Tokyo, Hong Kong, Switzerland, Nothing could possibly be done to him there that was any worse than had already happened to him in the United States. Just by virtue of trying to become a man in the United States, James Baldwin faced the very real threat of death. And this professor had no idea. And he couldn't turn his back on the society because if he turned his back on society, he would die as well. And icy dagger of understanding just pierced me. I saw in that juxtaposition so clearly that I was that professor. I was ignorant. I had absolutely no idea what millions of people in the world go through every day. But what do I do with that? I didn't get clarity on what to do until just last week. I was in a counseling session, and I realized that despite having this moment of awakening, that I needed to do something, and what I could do was listen. I could hold space in my heart and approach people with open ears and listen to their stories and listen to their life stories of pain and suffering and all of these things that I had never experienced, um, some of them hundreds of years, ancestral pain. 
And I could take that, and I could take the responsibility that I've been given as someone who epitomizes the problem, as an athletic white male, and I could walk back into that Romney room the next time that I'm faced with it, and I could speak up instead of joining. I could go to someone who makes a comment on the street and tell them that that is wrong. And by doing that, and by shouldering that responsibility, and by taking those actions, hopefully, just for a moment, in the lives of the people that I'm making space for in my heart, the people that I'm listening to, that I can gift them, or I can create for them more aptly, the peace and love and security and safety that I got to experience as a young boy growing up in a town north of Manhattan, tucked in a bend of the Hudson River in the shadow of the Palisades called Dobbs Ferry, New York.